Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is the official Winning Time podcast from HBO, Hyperobject Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Rodney Barnes. I want to build something special. The Los Angeles Lakers select... The entire league is on the verge of bankruptcy. Irvin... With me, it's going to be exciting. Magic... Our girls, they won't cheer. They'll dance. Johnson... It's showtime! So this is our final episode of the Winning Time podcast. And to close out our show, I'm sitting down with three actors who've been key this season. The amazing Tamira Tomakili, who plays Erletha Kelly, better known as our cookie. Hadley Robinson, who plays our genie bus. And finally, the man himself, John C. Riley, who plays Jerry Buss. But before all that, we've got to rewind for a recap of Winning Time's exciting season finale. It's Game 5 of the NBA Finals, and the series is tied 2-2 between the Lakers and the Philadelphia 76ers. The Lakers are in control because Kareem is balling. The captain is averaging 33 points, 13 rebounds, and doing it all with his signature skyhook. But things take a turn for the worst in the fourth quarter. If that ankle is broken and he plays on it, it's going to end his career. On the business side, Jerry Buss has another critical decision to make. Now that his mama has passed away, he's got to fill her role in the organization. Jeannie is right there. She knows the business. She wants the job. But I need you to take those two brothers of yours around this office and see how they spark to it. Meanwhile, game six is approaching, and the Lakers are one win away from the mountaintop. But with Kareem out, who's going to play center? Hey, fellas, we closing out in Philly. Me as him. But before game time, Magic can't seem to get his head above the competition when he hears Larry Bird is one rookie of the year. Rule number one, fucker. If you're thinking you ain't up to it, you ain't. The pressure is on. But you know what they say about pressure. It either bust pipes or makes diamonds. My first guest is Tamira Tomakili, who plays Erletha Cookie Johnson. Tamira. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, my first question is really more about you. Okay. How did you get your start in all of this madness that we call the entertainment industry? Hmm. Well, I am originally from LA, literally down the street, like Inglewood, Ladera area. So, that is down the street. I have been surrounded by it from a very young age. But when did I start? I started acting in high school, but I think I've always been somewhat sort of a creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until high school where I was in my first production and I'm looking around and like seeing a stage manager and like props people and the directors and the actors and like everyone who's like, you know, as an extra in background. And I'm like, 
this this is a thing? This is a world? I didn't know that, like, all these components needed to be put together in order to create something. And maybe it was the communal aspect of, like, creating or, like, being artistic that I was pulled to. But I, since then, I'm like, I need to do this. So how did you come over here with us, the Winning Time family? <laughs> how did you? Um, I I was in New York before this. Um, so after undergrad and coming back to L.A. and trying to figure out what my life was at a, as a 23-year-old adult, which mm. was chaotic, <laughs> mm. um, I was in L.A. for about two or three years, and, and I was not happy, so I bit the bullet and, like, jumped into grad school, auditioned, and and was grateful enough to get into grad school. And I was out there for three years, and I had just finished my last year, did the showcase, did everything, met all the people, got my great team, and I get an audition, and um, I sent it in. I auditioned for it, sent it in, and didn't hear anything back. Um, but I was like, you know what? This, I'm ready. I'm suited. This is the industry. I'm nothing can cut me down. <laughs> and two days after graduating, I get a call from my team, and they're like, Tamara, you did it. We're so proud of you. You booked it. And I was like, booked what? What do you like? What are you guys talking about? <laughs> and they're like, you got the role of Cookie with the the at that time it was called the Lakers Project, the HBO yes. Lakers Project. Yes. And I was just like, okay. I, I think on the inside, I just, I was so excited that I had no words. And um, I got back to my apartment and I told my mom. And yeah, we just like, you know, got on our knees, prayed and like just started singing and dancing. And it turned into like a big old celebration. So I'm a little jealous of you. Why? Because you get to to yell at Quincy <laughs> <laughs> and they pay you for it. <laughs> <laughs> I get to yell at him. You know, yeah, they pay me. But, you know, I yell at him in the streets. Uh You know, not necessarily just at work. Can you talk about, uh, for lack of a better word, (laughs) the chemistry? Yeah. Because you guys, there's there's something, there's Mm -hmm. there's certainly chemistry there that uh, you guys flow together really, really well. Yeah. Glad you can make it. Been missing. How bad? What you mean? I told you about that job I applied for in Detroit. What, you got it? Not if I want it. Good shit, cook. All that liquor, boxy paying off. Thing is, they're starting up a new branch in LA. Detroit it is. No, no. I know that look, Irvin. Nah, I want you to. I do. Can you talk about that relationship with Quincy and what it means mm-hmm. and how it sort of helps, you yeah. know, the dynamic between the two of you? Because it's so, I won't say volatile, but it's certainly from one scene to the next, there could mm-hmm. be this incredibly nurturing, loving scene. Yeah. And then there's this other thing that happens as well. Yeah. Can you speak to it a little bit? Yeah. Um, I think that was a big thing for Quincy and I is like this, we knew that this relationship meant something more than just this idea of like, oh, these people are in love with each other. And, you know, reading Cookie's book and and a little bit about magic as well and him coming with, you know, all this information with magic, I think we were both like, okay, apart from the scene work, we need to get to know each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are moments where we went on hikes. We had these really 
great bonding moments where we could actually like talk about things, just talk about us, who we were, how we started out, what our dreams or aspirations are. And I think that allowed some level of vulnerability between Quincy and I. I can't say that's where the chemistry came from, but like I think just being vulnerable with each other, I think we created that outside as Quincy and Tamara. And then, you know, jumping into the scenes, we were like, okay, this is it. Let's just be here together and figure it out as they're shooting. <laughs> I love when you get mad at him, though. Um, speaking of Cookie, mm-hmm. this relationship, this dynamic between the two of you, between Cookie and Magic, mm-hmm. isn't the conventional relationship. It's not the thing that you typically see in African-American love stories. Yeah. Uh, there's, there are complications and layers to it. And I can say, as a writer, it's interesting to mm-hmm. go to that place to where you're not doing the thing that's expected. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any opinions? Since you're Cookie yeah. in this world, how do you see... Because I'm sure you have your own opinions about what relationships should be. Yeah. Um, and this probably isn't that. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So how do how how do you feel about it? Um, I think of course my natural instinct is to be like, oh, you know, Cookie needs to set her boundaries, and <laughs> you know, she needs to not be with him, dump him. Like this is just toxic. But I think the way, you know, and this this speaks to you guys, you know, as the amazing writers on the show, I think there's complexity in, in human relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing that I was so grateful for is that it wasn't easy. Right. Is that it wasn't easy at all. And it and and those, you know, t- going back to being vulnerable with Quincy and like having those moments to be vulnerable um, in the scenes leads to that. And even though I want to instinctually say, oh, Cookie needs to set her boundaries, she needs to break up with him, it's not that simple. It's not that, it's not that easy. And this is a, this was a great opportunity for me to be like, okay, I can tell him no, but in the next scene, you know, he, he says something, you know, that is me and you, where we go, we go together. And like, in my mind, when I hear that as Tamara, the actor, that softens me. We us. We us. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think, I don't want to say this for every woman, but there's some sense of of family. There's something, there's, there's a love that is deeper than that, that um, I think this cookie, I don't know about the, right, exactly. the original cookie, exactly. but I think this cookie really pulls into and, and, um, and I think that softens her, and and whether she makes the right choice or not is, is how her character is written. Transcends conventional boundaries. Yeah. And, and I think too, uh, I hope folks take into consideration these characters are really young. Yes. And they're yes. thrown into the celebrity world, mm-hmm. coming from the Midwest, into LA and everything that comes with that. They're figuring it out as they go. Exactly. It's not like they have a reference point to anyone around them to be able to say. Who has done this. Exactly. And when you try to take those Midwestern values and place it into this dynamic, you know, taking into consideration our magic's frailties or Mm -hmm. or shortcomings, that, you know, you sort of look at it and you say, if I were in that same place, I hope that the public is able to have empathy. Exactly. She creates this, this, um, this kind of soul or this this humility or this grounding presence that 
magic has to kind of go back and forth with. So let's talk a little bit about um, Cookie's arc, her story arc throughout the series. Mm -hmm. Um, We begin on the steps in the pilot (laughs) of you basically stating where you think this relationship has gone. It's basically run its course and Mm -hmm. you go do your thing and good luck and I'm here if you need me. Yeah. You think I'm going to get out there with all that sun and money and whatever. You think it's going to change me. I didn't say change, Irvin. I know you. You know. You love me. That's why what we've been doing has to stop. And then somewhere midway, we go to we, us. Mm-hmm. And there's love. Mm-hmm. How does this journey from the beginning, from that pilot moment to where we are right now in 110, how do you see that that journey and how did it play out? How did it play out for you? Mm-hmm. How do you think it played out for Cookie, our Cookie? <laughs> oh, man. I think, you know, we're seeing these young adults, these these still kind of somewhat teens growing up. And I think at that final moment where, you know, someone asks her, do you know him? Hey, what's he like in person? Erletha, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard you went to MSU. I mean, you must know magic, right? No, can't say I do. I think she realizes with all their encounters, him, you know, saying, oh, you're just some chick I used to hit. <laughs> You know, sleeping with my best friend, Mm, mm -mm. you, you know, having all these, you know, other, these women who are like surrounding him and and Cookie coming into that saying, oh, he usually picks one from the crowd. You see her kind of say, I don't really know him. Right. I want to. I know, I know Irvin. Right. I know Irvin, you know, back at home, we used to push each other on the swings in the park, like, come to my dorm room, Irvin. I know the Mm -hmm. vulnerable side, the family, Irvin, but I don't know this Irvin. I mean, I think you have this empathy for him, and I think the part, if it were on scales, the Irvin part is the one that's winning, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to figure out what to do with the magic part, and that's where the conflict is. Yeah. Um... What do you think Cookie wants after everything she's been through with this brother? Mm -hmm. What do you think ultimately she wants? Or do you think she even knows what it is that she wants? I think she knows what she wants. I think she, and this goes back to, you know, reading Cookie's memoir. Mm -hmm. Um, She says it. She's a simple gal. You know what I mean? I think what she truly wants is someone who is going to be, be committed to making this thing work. I don't think she's asking for, oh, you need to put a ring on the finger. You need to, you know, wife me up right now. (laughs) But the same way that he puts his effort into the game and navigating the world and navigating the players and, and, you know, understanding how to white people feel about him and making them smile, I think that comes with just as much that kind of effort should be applied into the relationship. I want some of that too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If you want the, if you want me, you got to make that effort. And I think, you know, yeah, I think that is what Cookie is, is, is asking. But I think I'm, I think what Cookie is asking him is to grow in a different way that I don't know 
he's, yeah, he may not be ready for. Or capable. Or capable of doing. The women in the show, Mm -hmm. how do you see them, even though you're not from that period, how do you see the role of women in this really highly testosterone-driven male world? Yes, world. (laughs) Um, For my own perspective, I I do think that the, again, I think the women are strategically placed in here for a reason. Um, And the great thing is, I think, you don't see the women falling into stereotypes. You see them fighting against those stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course, I would love to see, you know, I think Jeannie has a, a great thing that we're seeing right now. You see her kind of fighting this this emotional kind of her her upbringing and, and coming into her own. You see that beautifully being played out. Um Hadley, shout out to Hadley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you see these women, and I think I talked to Gabby about this um, during one of the the press interviews. Is that you see this sense of of reality happening right. through women? Yes, you see these men kind of in the world of like, oh, we got to get this, we we got to get this team. They're they're out here within this game sense. But when you think about the reality of the world, you look at the women and seeing how they're navigating these relationships and, and fighting to, to gain more presence. Mm -hmm. And you see Gabby, you see Claire Rothman, you see, you know, Mama Christine, you see Cookie, you see them fighting so hard in the world that they are living in to have more, to gain more, to gain whatever it is that they, they want their desires, their hopes, their objectives. You see them fighting so hard in those scenes that you look at them and say, I think this is what the real world actually is. Right. This this Hollywood or this um, the Lakers, the game, yes, it's somewhat of a closed bubble and you see them trying to succeed in that world, but then you look at the women and you're like in full context of everything. You're like, wow, like these women are really like struggling. They're really trying to figure it out. They're really trying to gain their standing. You see them all fighting within this world. Thank you, Tamara, for coming on to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. For having me. My next guest is Hadley Robinson, who plays, in my opinion, the real hero of winning time, Jeannie Buss. Hadley, welcome to the show. Hi, Rodney. How are you? I'm doing pretty good now. I'm talking to you, so I feel safe. (laughs) You have this commanding presence that makes me feel like, okay, this is going to go great. I love it. (laughs) Safe space. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So take me back to the moment where you got the first script for Jeannie Buss. What did you think? How would you feel about the character of Jeannie? How would you see yourself as Jeannie Buss? What did you think? Take me there, please. Uh, yeah, it was a great moment. I got the script before I was uh, catching a flight out to L.A., and so I read the pilot on a plane, which is always the best time to read anything, mm-hmm. in my opinion, um, just because you have, like, this bubble of space. And I was just, I read it all in one go, and I was so in. It just felt different from anything I'd read in a really long time. Jeannie also really stood out to me as a character that was important and interesting and complex, uh, just with little seeds of information throughout the pilot where I was like, oh, this this girl's going to go on a journey. 
this is a, there's a real arc here. And it got me really excited. And I got off the plane and I think I called my agent and was like, all right, I really want to go for this. I really want to go for this because I get this, I I get this girl. I understand. I, um, and I felt sort of an affinity and it's, it stuck with me, you know? And, and so I was excited. I just got really excited reading it. So did you see a place like where she fit into this world? Because where she comes into the series, you know, She's coming in as an intern, mm. not into the big world with dad and, you know, all of these players and the big business and ultimately where she ends up. Um, mm. How do you think she fit into all of that? It's so funny because I don't know if she necessarily does fit in right off right off the bat, but her father buying this team is huge and exciting. He's wanted to do it for a while and she gets excited, I think, because he's excited. Right. And she wants she wants him to be excited, but also she's like, wait, I've got some ideas. I think I think I could really be a part of this thing. Dad, I want to work for you. Jeannie, come on. <laughs> what? I'm having a hard time imagining Jerry West and Bill Sharman taking orders from Miss Palisades, which well, I'm very proud of. Just tell them to take it from Miss Bus. And I'm not asking to give orders I'm asking to work so she feels I think she maybe internally feels very much a part of this thing but then she just kind of has to find her footing I think it's a struggle and a a challenge in the beginning for sure because maybe she doesn't really know where she belongs necessarily well speaking to that struggle how do you see the evolution of her relationship with her dad because in the beginning it seems like she's just happy to be in his presence and working with him and all of that but it certainly takes on a life of its own over the course of the season it really does it really does you see at the beginning how much love she has for her father and how much she wants to please him that's really important to her and and you know she she sort of is seeing him with the rose-colored glasses, you know? Like, my father can do no wrong mm-hmm. in the beginning. And I, I think a huge part of that is um, when her parents got divorced when she was, I think she was around 12 or maybe earlier, she didn't really understand the concept of divorce. And so she was telling all her friends that her father had died. She was like, oh, my father. <laughs> they were like, where's your dad? Where's your dad? And she would say, oh, he's dead, because she couldn't come up with a better solution mm. because she just didn't understand the concept of divorce. And then suddenly at age 14, he comes back into her life and he starts bringing her to meetings. And and so she's going to all these meetings with him. And so this is kind of their love language. She's like, oh, this is how I can connect with him. And so, um, but then I think as she starts to get to know her dad more and spending more time with him, seeing his true colors, I think there's this sort of, deep disgust way, way deep down that sort of is um, repelling her from him. But I think at a certain point she says, you know, okay, these are, these are your true colors. This is who you are. And she kind of accepts his flaws while putting some distance between him, uh, him and her for sure. Mm-hmm. I think she kind of pushes him away. Definitely. But she also, She's being smart about it because she's also saying, all right, this is what my father wants. This is who he is. This is a representation of man. And this is the market we're appealing to. And so how can I use this to my advantage? So, you know, one of the one of the highlights of writing and producing on this show is that you get to sit in editing and watch the episodes again and again and again. 
dozens of times, if not more. And one of the moments that struck me in episode 10, my favorite Jeannie Buss moment, when you're sitting across from Dr. Buss and you think you're going to get the thing that you've been working for all season. Yeah. (laughs) But then he asks you to help him pick which brother is going to take the thing that you rightfully deserve. Yeah. Can you talk about that moment a little bit? Yeah. Oh, I love that moment because, you know, I think maybe as an audience, you think she's going in a certain direction as well and she's going to get what she wants. And then to see that she's put in all this work, she's done everything she possibly can. And you lean in. And you lean in like, I'm about to get this thing, Dad. (laughs) And then, but go ahead. Oh, and also that would be the redeeming yes. moment for her father as yes. well. Yes. To be like, you know what, I've and and he's expressed it to other, you know, people in the team, been like, oh yeah, no, I can see her potential and and I understand what she brings brings to the team and everything. But but then to say, you know what, you know, I think we gotta choose one of your your brothers who you know have been nowhere in sight. <laughs> I mean, we're the, Except we're the at LMA. a game. We saw him sit at a game once. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, and I think it's just that moment of um yeah, being br- just breaking on the inside. But the interesting thing that happens when you break is that you then that's when you rebuild. In that moment, she's like, All right, we have to choose a different route maybe even play dirty at this point. Who knows? Well, I, I can see that because there's another scene that's coming up, another big genie scene that comes up right after this where she meets with Claire Rothman. My grandma was so smart, so tough. But I think she gave the best of it away. But I don't want to be like her. I want to be like you. You never will. You're going to be him. It's almost like she's looking for, and tell me if this is true, some semblance of perspective as to how she feels. Like I'm, I'm looking to regroup uh, much to what you just said. Is that yeah. how you see it? Yeah. It's like she knows, she knows deep down that, you know, this thing is inevitable. And, you know, she is the daughter of her father. And um, I think, yeah, her her destiny is sort of set in stone. It's inevitable. She knows what she's capable of. But she's trying to, she's struggling to pull away at all costs because she doesn't, she doesn't maybe relate to her father in the ways that, that she'd like to. And, um, but I think when Claire, somebody who she respects so much, says that to her, I think that's almost permission to say, okay, okay, I'm going to be him, but I'm going to do it my way. What's it like playing a real person? There's a real genie bus in the world. How do you research that type of thing? How do you get to that place of being you and then transitioning to a real person? It's a great question. I mean, it's, I think just diving into as much information as you possibly can, absorbing everything there is out there about her and (laughs) than doing your best to capture the essence of the person. Right. And I think at this age, you know, she's 19 in 1979. And I I want, the interesting thing to me in projects is seeing somebody's journey 
their their transition, where the change happens, because the change is what's interesting. And and I want to see track her growth. You know, in a lot of interviews, she says, you know, I was shy. I was so shy as a kid. Right. And I think quote for quote, she says, you know, but I play a role. I'm just, and she laughs it off. Oh, I'm just playing a role. I'm just playing a role. Somebody <laughs> called her stoic on this podcast. Mm. And she said, oh, no, no, I'm acting. And that is what's interesting to me. I think we're seeing who she really is right now, but something's going to snap. And and I think, you know, it's starting to kind of percolate in in the end part of the season where that transition happens, where she turns into sort of a more politicized public version of herself. What do you want audiences to take away from this portrayal of Jeannie and just Jeannie in general? Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, I have so much respect for Jeannie Buss as a, as a real, you know, living person. And I like watching watching her watch, you know, and I love how you wrote her because I think there aren't that many characters like that. It's it's no. very like external, but she's, you know, internal and she's observing and it's going to be fun to see then, you know, where she goes with that. But I just think she's like becomes such a strong, important woman in the sports community. It's so fun to see who she is at the very beginning and how she gets there. And that sometimes it's not as easy as we might think. Hadley, thank you for being on the show. Watching Jeannie Bus grow is one of my favorite storylines on the show. And thank you for making the character come to life. Rodney, thank you so much. This was fun. All right, up next is our final guest this season on the podcast, John C. Riley, who plays the one and only Jerry Buss. John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Rodney. So, what drew you to this role? Why did you want to become Jerry Buss? Uh, because Adam McKay asked me to. <laughs> um, and then once I realized who Jerry Buss was, I realized oh my God, I've just been handed the greatest character maybe of my career. It's definitely up there with my favorite experiences. So, you know, sometimes you're born great and sometimes greatness is thrust upon you. And yes, yes. <laughs> sure, he was born great and I had greatness thrust upon me. So I knew, I knew Adam would have my back and it's a great script that you guys wrote. And I wanted to do it because it just seemed like a lot of fun. What kind of, what was the research process? going into all of this because he didn't write a book right he didn't write an autobiography he didn't really you know for being such a public person he actually didn't talk to the public very much after this first season I think he did what he had to do to get the attention that he needed for the team and then once they were off and running he would do like one interview a year yeah beginning of the season to talk about the state of the team so yeah it was a challenge actually knowing exactly what the guy was thinking from, from, you know, at these different junctures in his life. But the facts of his life are evocative enough. You know, (laughs) true. You look at that guy's life where he came from in rural Wyoming, his incredible academic career, and and then his real estate career, and then the sports team part of his life. Um, There's some really big chapters of this guy's life. And seemed like people were constantly underestimating him or dismissing him or just thinking like, oh, you're not the kind of person that does 
what you want to do. And I could relate to that part, you know. That was my next question. As far as empathizing with him, was there anything you connected to that you learned about with Jerry that you personally connected to? Yeah, I mean, most of his kind of like personality I, I, I related to. You know, my dad was of the same generation as Jerry, and there's a swagger that men of that generation had that I really understood. You know, my dad was really, really, very much like this. The power of positive thinking. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. Don't listen to naysayers. Charge forward, work your hardest, and great things will happen. Like, that was my dad's attitude. And, you know, coming from the south side of Chicago to L.A. to become an actor in movies, like, I could really relate to that feeling of feeling like an outsider here in L.A. Uh, and people telling you, you don't, you know, you don't look like you're supposed to look to be a movie star. It's a competitive business, and there's a lot of people along the way that try to undermine you. And I can really relate to that kind of uh, stuff in Jerry's life. Um, I also, I'm just someone who, one of my favorite sort of life mottos is worry is negative prayer. So mm. when you're worrying, that means you're praying mm -hmm. for the thing you don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I believe in the opposite. Even if things are not looking great, I still really believe in meditating on what you want to happen, not what you are afraid will happen. And that was all Jerry, you know? Yeah, very he much. He wore his confidence like a badge of honor, you know, and like a like a shield in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think he could have pulled off what he pulled off if he had listened to uh, his sound advice. <laughs> if he listened to Frank. Yes, if he just went for Frank. Um, when we meet Jerry, it's funny because Max and I used to talk about the differences between the pilot and episode two. Like the pilot was Jerry going after the team, but he gets the thing that he wants. And sort of episode two sends him on this other journey uh, in learning about the thing that he actually owns now. Yeah. In looking at the arc, Jerry Buss's arc of our season one, emotionally, what do you see that journey as being? Well, I think, you know, I think Jerry knew what he wanted to do from the very beginning, actually. And he let people underestimate him on purpose, I think. Because when people are underestimating you, they are also under, underestimating your power and your strength. And that's the best time to whack somebody upside the head <laughs> with your power and your strength when they're underestimating you. Yes. Um, so I think, yes, I think he, I think he thought he would get more cooperation from the, from the organization yes. at the beginning. I think once he realized who the characters were in the organization and how he had to quickly figure out how to read them. And he, you know, that was one of his great talents was he's an amazing poker player. And when you play poker, the whole thing is figuring out what do people, what are they really feeling right now? Mm -hmm. And what are they capable of? And do they have the cards or not? Right. Or are they bluffing, you know? And so I think once he quickly introduced himself and tried to charm his way into the lives of all these different people. Then he set about trying to convince everyone that they could do it, um, which I think turned out to be a lot harder than he had expected. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was one of those things is like too big to fail. You know, right. <laughs> once you push all your <laughs> chips across the table, yes. it's not like you can take half the chips back. Like 
you're all in, you're all in. So, um, you know, that was one of the surprising things for me as a person playing the role was how much the tension kept ratcheting up. Yes. And I don't even, I, I think I may have told you this, Rodney, but I wasn't reading the episodes way ahead of time. Yeah, I heard, yeah you told me. Yeah, I was reading them right as we were doing them. So I didn't quite see the crushing right. pressure coming, you know? <laughs> and you could say like, well, you're just playing a character that's not really you. But, you know, when you're, when you're really doing your job as an actor, you're really feeling those things. Yes, at the end of the day, you, you are able to go, yes, that didn't really happen to me. But you're still carrying the psychic weight, right. the emotional cost of those scenes and what was going on with him so you know by the time i finished the show i was i was surprised at how much it kicked my ass to tell you the <laughs> truth so i can't even imagine what jerry was going through you know with, with his whole life on the line like that let's talk about the stuff that had to do with mom jesse bus yeah. and with Jeannie bus how do you think they shaped or helped to shape Jerry on this other journey while he's traveling on this other journey with the team? I think, you know, Jerry had this reputation for being like a ladies man and dating a lot. And he did, you know, after mm -hmm. he got divorced, he enjoyed being single for the rest of his life. <laughs> yes, he did. But I think those women in his life, Jesse, Jeannie, uh, Claire, for that matter, uh, were strong women who were not pushovers. Uh, even Je Jeannie, when she was young, you know, she had a point of view. So I think when you have women in your life, strong women in your life, they teach you about women. And they teach you the kind of respect that women deserve. And they teach you the power of that. So um, Jesse was, his mother was his, his best friend. And, you know, when you grow up, a, a, an only kid with, with just one parent, that's your primary relationship. So, and you, you know, some, you know, this whole thing about his genes, that was something that really clued me in early on about the chip on his shoulder, or at least his, his ability to keep it real with himself. Like he, he, his mother bought him those unhemmed jeans when he was a little <laughs> kid because they couldn't afford the hemmed ones. Right. And she would cut off the bottom of them, and then they'd end up getting frayed and fringy, and that looked cool in the 70s. Yes. But then Jerry wore those jeans like that for the rest of his life. <laughs> yes, he did. You know, when he could have he could have afforded way cooler jeans than those, you know? Yes. But that shows you that and keeping his entire family involved in the organization from beginning to end shows you the kind of guy he was. He never forgot where he came from, and he never forgot the the people in his life who are loyal to him um and, and jesse was the was the queen you know yes so i think i think yeah he he had a lot of fun with women but i think because of Jeannie and jesse uh he also had a lot of respect for women and understood how powerful they were all of that said in episode 10 we have this moment where we've seen and Throughout the journey, and certainly when Jesse was getting sick in our, in our latter episodes, Jeannie stands by Jerry. But yet, when the sons come back, he picks them over Jeannie. Or he tries to. Yes, yes, <laughs> he comes, yes. He comes to his senses and he realizes Claire is the most reasonable person to give the job to. But um, I think, you know that was one of the most interesting scenes for me to play, to tell you the truth. That scene when I tell Jeannie 
you know, you think she's going to get the job offer in that yep. moment. We have a seat that's opened up at the company. And it was your grandma's seat. Treasurer. And I need your help, Jeannie. <laughs> of course, Dad. I need you to take those two brothers of yours around this office and see how they spark to it. You know, and then tell me who you think would be the better pick. Because, you know, what's the point of having a family business if we don't get some family in here, you know? That was, like, so heartbreaking to me. But I knew I had to play it as tough as I could. You know, I couldn't be like, oh, honey, listen, I'm sorry, but the boys... Uh, that was not the perspective of men in 1979 of my dad's era. Right. You know, he was a creature of his time. You know, it was just assumed, like, well, yeah, right. my dad, you know, the boys are older than you. Uh, I'm going to go to the next of kin or whatever. The next yeah. the heir to the throne would be yes. one of these two guys. You know, of course, he loved Jeannie and kept her around all the time and, and did rely on her. But I think at the time, it was just sort of a... It's just what I think men thought they were supposed to do. And certainly but, she evolved. He, 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 he just a little bit of time with Jimmy and Johnny made him realize <laughs> any player would be better in the, in the intro. Yeah. This is true. So, you know, we win the championship in episode 10. Is Jerry on top of the world? Because it seems like now he's getting this thing that he says he wants but there seems to be some ambivalence. How do you see it? Well, you know, it's these things that you wait, you're wishing and wishing for the shiny prize. And then you get the shiny prize and, you, and it's not until you actually win it and you get it that you understand its worth or its lack of worth. You know, if you don't win, you'll never know what it's worth. But when you win, you know what it's worth. And I think in that moment, Jerry realizes he was doing it for his mom. Right. And, you know, at least this initial season, he wanted to prove to her, like, we can do this. We're going to create this together. Um, and then the loss of her really puts things into perspective. So I do think he it's a big kind of bottoming out for him when he loses his mom, obviously. I'm talking about the character. You right. Know? Yeah, yeah. That's not necessarily about Jerry's real life, you know, but in our show, in yes. our story. Our Jerry. Yeah, our Jerry. And. I think, uh, you know, that said, when he, he re realized it's somewhat of an empty triumph for him, at the same time, he also must feel a great sense of satisfaction. Like, I did. I pulled it off. But I think that's one of the reasons that he got involved in sports in the first place. Because for someone who has an unending craving for more and for more success and mm -hmm. more achievement and uh, sports is the perfect thing. It's a, it's a perennial. It's ongoing, yeah. No matter what you did last year, you got to do it all over again. And, you know, as a theater actor, I really relate to that. It's like, it just keeps you hungry. It's like, no matter how great opening night went, you got <laughs> months of performances to go. And yes. every single time you show up on stage, you got to deliver for that audience again. There's a cruel truth to that. Um, and I think that Jerry, Jerry realized like this, this is my sweet spot, you know, having to do it over and over again is actually what I'm born to do. At the end of episode 10, Jerry gives a speech. Where do you go from here? 
Now I guess we do it all over again. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right. Everyone who said we couldn't do it, you can go fuck. <laughs> who do you think he's talking to with the the go fuck yourself? Well, you know what? I tell you something about that line. I actually that was just me improvising ah. in the room after the take. I thought the take was over. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really hot in that room. Yes. And there were all these extras, and I could see they're starting to flag. And I was like, we got more takes to do this. I want to keep these guys engaged so that they don't know what I'm going to say next. Even though they've heard me give the same speech six times in a row now, I wanted them to have a sense of excitement, like, what is he going to say next? So I just threw that out there as a joke, thinking, like, well, I'll never use that. Because Jerry, <laughs> Jerry didn't say it. Right. He did it in that moment he said the things i said previous to that right. that's verbatim but he did not say that and you know at the premiere party when we were there one of the editors came up to me he's like i just love when you say anyone who who doubted us can go fuck yourselves yes. he's like i fought for that line to be in there and i was like what i didn't mean for that <laughs> line to be in there that was just that's just how the sausage was made it, um, it's still there it's still there i think that i think that you know, that was a part of me uh, letting Jerry's inner life out a little bit, you know, because mm -hmm. I think as much as you like to wear your bravado as your shield and say, like, nothing, you can't affect me. Nothing you says affects me. I'm going to win. I'm a winner. I'm a survivor. There is some part of you inside that's like, damn you people that didn't believe in me. You know, my, my impulse as being kind of an advocate for Jerry myself at that moment, I, I wanted to say that to those guys. But I was also just trying to keep the extras engaged in the scene. You know, that's the truth. So what do you think Dr. Buss's impact was on the Lakers? I know the obvious answer, but I sort of see his presence still there on the team now, even though they're struggling right now. Um, yeah. How do you see how do you see that impact on the organization? Well, not to be cheeky, but I went to the game against mm -hmm. Golden State when LeBron scored 60 points and won that game. And I was sitting there thinking, like, I know I'm not Doc. I'm, I know I'm not Jerry Buss. Everyone knows I'm not Jerry Buss. But I'm sitting here in this courtside seat, and these guys on this team know this show is coming out tomorrow night. <laughs> and I got to think. Somewhere in that locker room, someone said, I'll be damned if this show is coming out tomorrow night and people are going to say, yeah, but they got their asses kicked by Golden State last night. LeBron was like, hell no, not in Jerry's house, not in our house. So I think, you know, the impact on the team and the impact on the Lakers of Jerry was that kind of thing, like that pride of place. You know, this is our house. This is a family team. This is this city's team, you know? Right. Jerry built, built that thing in a way that everyone in L.A., no matter how much of a sports fan they were, they felt like these are our guys. This right. is our team. And it's still, good or bad, people are still involved in yes. this city. They still matter. Team. Yeah. Yes, they still matter. Well, John... I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate you in general. The feeling's mutual. I really do. I, one of the great joys for me of this whole project is getting to know you slowly through the making of it. You're a towering intellect, my man. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Can't wait to see you. Talk to you soon. All right, take it easy.
Well, we made it. Our last buzzer beater. But this week, we're not talking about behind-the-scenes moments or Easter eggs because, to me, everything in this show is kind of an Easter egg. I wanted to take a beat and tell you about what this show means to me and what I've learned about playing in the world that is the Showtime Lakers. You know, throughout my career, I've had some pretty cool jobs, but I can't think of one that is cooler than this one. I'll tell you why. I get an opportunity to work with one of my best friends, Max Borenstein, and a lot of really, really cool, great people. Our cast, our crew, everyone involved is deeply, deeply committed to just doing their best work every day. And that has an effect on you as a guy who at times didn't believe he would ever get here where he's working with the best people in this industry. It's truly an honor. And so you go through all of this, three and a half years of writing a show, producing a show, getting through COVID, dealing with everything in life that you have to deal with while all of that is taking place. And someone says to me, hey, Rodney, want to do a podcast? And it was like, okay, I really love this show. And I love the people that are involved. And I was so fortunate to work with our cast, who were incredible, who came in to interview crew members who came in to interview. And then I got an opportunity to work with some great people who actually produced this show and dealt with me and my shortcomings as a host. I'm very patient with me along the way. Yeah, I know it's tough to believe that it requires patience to deal with me, but at times it does. Um, But it's been a fantastic experience, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for listening, thank everyone for participating in this venture. I really, really, really appreciate the opportunity to be able to come on here every week and talk to you guys about a show that I deeply love. It's deeply personal to me. And I hope you enjoyed season one. We're working on season two now, and I look forward to coming back and hopefully talking to you guys about that next year. I usually say, see you then, but now I'll say, I hope to see you later. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the official Winning Time podcast and for sticking with the show week in and week out. And a special thank you to our guests, Tamira Tomakili, Hadley Robinson, and John C. Riley. You can watch all season one of Winning Time on HBO Max and be sure to keep an eye out for word about season two. I'm Rodney Barnes. See you soon. This is the official Winning Time companion podcast. And it's a production of HBO, Pineapple Street Studios, and Hyper Object Industries. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson, Claire Slaughter, Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our lead producer on the show is Jess Hackle. Aaron Kelly is our managing producer. Shaka Mali, Jonathan Shiflett, and Elliot Adler are our producers. Darby Maloney is our editor, and our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Production music is courtesy of HBO, and you can watch episodes of Winning Time on HBO Max.